Just a quick note to say that if this episode ever sounds a bit technically dodgy, for example, like it's perhaps been recorded remotely during lockdown, well, it has been. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Comics Books. I'm Lucy Dancer and for many years I've worked as a producer alongside a number of excellent comedians. I'm also a book obsessive who's always asking friends and strangers alike what they're reading. So, I thought I'd bring my two passions together and find out what do funny people read. Today's guest is one of my favourite people in comedy. She's always hilarious, has a lovely voice, is a splendid actress. You might have seen her in Motherland and among many other shows and has an excellent mind that just last week she showed off in QI. She also has her own podcast called Hoovering that's all about eating delicious food that you should listen to immediately after this. Yup, it's Jess Fosterkew. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm all right. Are you doing any of these sort of outdoor gigs now? Because I'm starting to... Yeah, I have. Yeah? What did you do? two drive-in gigs yesterday. Uh, yesterday. Did two. No, um, I did two on Saturday in the same place and two on Thursday. I did Bath and St Albans and they're like drive-in gigs where there's 200 cars full of people. And um, I, I just, I'm such a, I don't think I'd want my entire career to be that forevermore because um, the honking of the cars gave me a bit of a headache. But I was just so happy to be there, so excited to be doing stand-up, standing up again. And um, And it was mad how quickly you start to, you know, accept a car horn as like a bib, as a laugh. And, and honestly, by the third of the four gigs, I was going, well, that joke normally gets at least 10 honks. It was crazy. What have you, you've been doing your podcast a lot, haven't you? Yeah, I've kept that up all the way through. And um, I've been really lucky in the sense that because live work's kind of been done up until last week for a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm really lucky in the sense I've had some... Uh, some writing commissioned just before lockdown and then a little bit more during so I feel sort of a a big wash of gratitude to the universe for that Um, and also yeah it's meant I've been really busy work-wise all the way through this so. Have you got much reading done then? Well nowhere near as much as I would like. I've read more than I would have done in normal times. I had Uh a I had to read some, some some novels as part of another podcast um so I smashed through them at a rate I wouldn't usually I I've you know I said it to you before we were recording but I am an incredibly slow reader I just find it's months and months and months on the same book and 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 I don't know life is so busy but no um I reread an amazing book for someone I was interviewing that the, the author um a book called The Fuck It Diet um <laughs> by Caroline Duna uh it's a really really amazing anti-diet book one of the best I've ever read actually okay and uh, I'm reading a book that my mum sent me at the beginning of lockdown and, and said, I read this when I was about your age. But it is heavy going. It's um, it's called Germinal and it's a Zola novel. And it's, um, it's all about sort of incredibly poor miners on the brink of starvation whose bosses are greedy, greedy aristocrats. Um, it's better than that. It's visually really amazing. But that's the one I'm struggling to read before I drift off. And that's the one that appears to have been taking me the entirety of lockdown to get through. But um, I, I, these days, I would usually stop reading a book if it was too hard going because my life's too short and how long it takes me. But when my mum has sent me it in the post and it's her book, I, I do think I have to get through it. I do, yeah. I think I've really avoided heavy books 
in lockdown. Right. I found at the beginning that any book that was a bit dark, I felt like just exacerbated my my fears of what was going on at the moment. And I leaned towards sort of romance and thrillers and surprises and, you know. I think that's very sensible, actually. I've not done that. Even with the television I've been watching, I've not done that. And I've noticed that I've been a lot more affected by things because you've just got more time in your own head to stew on things after you've watched or read them yeah so yeah I think you've probably made a very wise move there whereas unfortunately my mum sent me a book about starving miners so (laughs) we blame Nikki blame Nikki um but yeah I as a rule I alternate um fiction non-fiction fiction fiction, non-fiction um so yeah I basically I've got I really want to I've got um well, I'm sure maybe we'll talk about it, but I've got a guy called Will Storr's book, which is a non-fiction book about the art of storytelling or the craft of storytelling to read next. And I'm so desperate to read that, that it is putting a bit of um, put a bit of, bit of fiery momentum in how often I'm making myself endure a bit of germinal just to get it done. So when, when did you, would you say, first like read a book or have a book read to you the first time that you're like oh this is a book so there's quite a big delay between the the two types that the first time I had a book read to me was straight off the bat I think my mum and well especially my mum were very good at like reading me books as a as a baby and there was a book that I apparently loved and wanted every night um called the avocado baby it's about (laughs) it's about this little baby that they just they it was I think I mean I have read it more recently because I, <laughs> I um it's a really it's quite it's, those eighties um kids books have mm. not necessarily stood the test of time very well like in terms of they're so dark like the avocado baby reading it as an adult you go oh I mean this is a book about an underweight baby that wouldn't eat anything and then these desperate parents eventually got it to eat avocado but um I loved that book and my parents loved it because I really loved avocados when I was a baby. And the other book mm-hmm. that I loved, and I've still got it, even though it's held together by Sellotape and Hope, and I read it to my son. But, well, this is interesting. It's called There's a Hippopotamus on My Roof. And I love <laughs> it. And um, there's a drip in the ceiling. And this little girl is like, there's a hippopotamus on my roof eating cake. And, you know, and, it, and they show you in her family and she's talking about the hippopotamus. And the hippopotamus rides a bike. It does all this stuff up there. Sometimes it goes to work in the zoo making people laugh like it's this but then there's really my I love it and there's a bit where she says to her mum um her mum saying what sort of cake is it a birthday cake she said no is it chocolate cake no is it a special cake she goes yeah and I love that um but there's a bit in it where she colors on one of her dad's book and her dad hits her and I was like oh, oh. dear um and there's another bit in it where like it's it's really clear now you look at it and get oh the mum is always on a diet and that's really heartbreaking like they're all getting to eat like really nice things and the mum's always having like a shard of lettuce. And I was like, oh God, this, I just don't think you get away with writing that now. And the other day, we hadn't read it for ages. I said to myself, oh, can we read Hippopotamus on the Roof? And he went, no, I think the dad's too scary. And I was like, oh, wow. Like all our sentiments have changed so dramatically. Um, but yeah, that's what I loved when I was a kid because in the 80s, we weren't really scared. We weren't as, we weren't as, um, our parents weren't as careful about what sorts of messages were in the books. So you said there was quite a big gap in between yeah. the first. So my mum loves to tell the story that I'm not, I'm not dyslexic and, um, and you know, I've done 
pretty well academically in the grand scheme mm. of things. But um, when I first went to school, I took, in my mum's words, an embarrassing amount of time, longer than the other kids, to learn to read. And she just remembers just her heart sinking when she'd pick me up from school and all the other kids were starting to get their first books, like Peter and Jane and all of those like early learning reading books. And I was still like just holding a couple of flashcards with basic words on. Like I think I um I think it, I was really slow to learn to read. I remember with handwriting as well, I had to have one of them special triangular rubbers on my pencil to try and make me hold it right for about till I was about twelve. I had that. Um so I and, and as a result of that perhaps I wasn't I, I just my mum was desperate for a kid who was a reader. She's a vociferous reader and my luckily much much younger half sister also is so she got her dream in her um in someone who was constantly reading and for me I just had no interest in reading independently until I was about 11 and then it was just the what broke the seal it's not cool and I'm not proud but it was the entire point horror series wait have you read every single one I read them all at the time yeah I read every single one Funhouse was my favorite they were all exactly the same story in slightly different settings I didn't care. Good. You shouldn't care and you should be proud. See, yeah. I think you shouldn't belittle what you enjoy reading because they were your gateway drug. They were my gateway drug. They were 100%. I, they, because of them, that led me into point crime. <laughs> <laughs> really oh, God, really eyebrow crumbs alive. Yeah, and then I got in. Then I got into it. And then, if I'm honest, I probably, through puberty, started to find, I, I can't remember the name of them, but I remember, I, you know, mum then was like, okay, well, read this, read this, read this. And I must have found something on her shelf that was slightly saucy. And then um, I do remember, I do, I mean, a very mild erotica. It was lots of sort of middle-aged women with a very handsome nephew who came to use the, needed to use the shower on their houseboat, watching their rippling muscles. And it was always women getting saved by a man, like dog shit books. But um, obviously you just wanted to get your, rocks off didn't you really when you were a teenager yeah. so I, I went through lots of like yeah just reading really trashy what I now realize is probably yeah ro- romance so from point horror to that and then yeah oh god I don't know yeah and then I don't know when I got into reading good books <laughs> much much later when you sent your list through to me you did something that no one's done so far Ooh. which is said these are significant but I don't necessarily like them all in fact I hate them yes but you didn't tell me which one which I'm excited about no I I sort of yeah I thought oh I thought maybe it's obvious but then I thought yeah we could I can explain when I get onto them yeah well let's kick off with Harry Potter then because that's a that's one a lot of people have read yeah I love them um I still love them I think you know obviously problematic on a number of levels certainly in the current climate and I, but I thought, well, I'm not going to not put them down. I read them when I was young and I, you know, it's, I think with them, it was the first books that I read that I felt like all of my peers were reading with me, adults as well. Do you, oh, do you know what? I, I can't remember when they came out. So whether this was when they'd come out and I was already doing A-level English, but my English literature teacher gave us for the summer after our first year, or maybe even over Christmas, my first ever you know like reading list from a teacher and what I loved about it it was so diverse basically and he said don't want you to just read one sort of book this is about you know so it had all the Harry Potters on it top of the list 
And then the next thing on it was um, Umberto Eco. I was like, whoa, do you know what I mean? Like, or, or like, yeah, um, yeah uh, it was amazing, amazing to sort of, and anyway, so I think with the Harry Potter books, I loved reading something I felt like all my friends were reading too. Adults, you know, all the adults I knew were reading it, all the kids I knew were reading it. It, it felt lovely to be part of what felt like, certainly for kids to be like, wow, so for me as well, to get sort of really yeah. carried away and swept up in a thing. Although, you know, it's obviously had this legacy. I was never, you know, I never would have bought merch or, mm. I don't know, identified as a Hufflepuff. Like, I'm not into that. I just love the book. Um, I suppose there's a difference between, like, sort of liking sometimes watching Star Trek and being a Trekkie, isn't it? I never I never went tits deep into Potterism as a cult. Um, but I, um, I, did, I just loved the books. I thought they were funny and uh, really thrilling and exciting. And, and, and I think one of the things main reason I stuck it on the list for this is they gave me really vivid dreams and I, I, I've always loved it when a world is so clear that I start dreaming in that world and putting my you know really boring hack unimaginative scenarios from my life but all set in a beautiful mm. hall <laughs> with owls up in the rafters and stuff you know that's really it's really real incredible to make a world that vivid. I think that's why it's it's spiraled off into such an empire isn't it it's because mm. so much care into building that world I think yeah. that it, it was like another real world but yeah. just an exciting crazy one and she just left everything there for it to be turned into theatre and theme yeah. parks and I went totally. to a banquet the banquet once it was very strange amazing was, why not no I mean I wasn't invited I was a waitress so <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've been there. So I would say that you read Harry Potter and then you also put on his Dark Materials, which yeah. I would say that I think those are books that a lot of kids read. Yes, probably, yeah. Um, again, that was one where I think for me the, that that was, I felt sort of, I know they're written for young people, but that felt like intellectually kind of levelled up. I do feel bad that I'm choosing these authors who have got, they've really, I, I feel, I do feel like this pang of sadness that so many of the, the most incredible minds in terms of creative writing are kind of really just falling off a cliff in terms of the wrong side of history opinions wise but equally I think if you stop consuming the art of um, uh, everybody who who has a disgusting opinion there's not going to be much left um, but um, yeah I, I thought those books were incredible the, 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 the way across the three of them that the world gets more and more complicated but it's the least patronising books for young people I've ever read. I mean, it's so complicated. The ideas, the concepts of politics and religion and power, the, the way those themes are dealt with, the fact that it's a female protagonist. I, I just thought it was so rich, that's the word, really rich and exciting and scary, and but entirely kind of, you know, fantasy that feels possible. I, I'm a big, big fan of science fiction generally and um, reading science fiction and watching some, but like I really love it when it um, uh, makes a fascinating comment on a, a potentially real situation. But also, you know, it's complete fantasy. I think the other thing about those, the, um, the Dark Materials trilogy was that for the first, I already was a nerd who would happily read fantasy or sci-fi. I had a lot of female mates and still do who would say they're not genres that they read. You know, they're occasionally a thriller or drama or whatever, but they don't read sci-fi or fantasy. 
but that book, those books are the exception and they loved them. But is that just because they're sort of the big famous ones and if the other ones were, or, or if it's in the marketing? Oh, I don't know, actually. I think they are exceptionally brilliant books, actually. I don't know. I just yeah. don't feel qualified to answer that. I, the, Station Eleven, I don't know, got nowhere near as big. You know, there's no national theatre play of that. But you're right, yeah, I suppose maybe when, and, and I think they are making a film of it now. The other one's The Road, isn't it, that everybody read and because there was the horrible film. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. What a time, actually, to start start bringing up all these post-apocalyptic <laughs> books. Uh, you re- you chose John Wyndham, uh, Day of the yeah. Triffids, didn't you? Oh, God, it's so good. Is it? What's that? So, yeah, again, not one I've read. Oh, it's just so frightening. Uh, so, I mean, again, it's, I'm, unfortunately, this makes me a dog shit podcast guest. But I don't remember loads of stuff from things. But at the end of the day, they're very scary plants. <laughs> um, but I think I think it's one of those things where it deals with it, where it deals with what would happen if there something happened to the whole planet, which meant that almost everyone was blind, apart from a few people. So actually, what what it's about is how societies interact. It's about how we treat, and there's gender stuff in there. He's very feminist. He's kind of you know fifth wave feminist before his time. John Wyndham. There's some. It's just actually about how humans treat humans in extreme circumstances. That seems to me. That's what I love about great sci-fi. I know it's not all books. I keep talking about sort of, um, but Star Trek's the same. You know, it's about international relations as much as uh, you know Klingon language or any of that nonsense. It's that's what I'm into about it. The human element, really. Okay, so every podcast I try and pick one of the books on someone's list that I haven't read and give it a whirl. And it's it's quite a bumper book, so I haven't finished it, but yeah. it's genuinely completely, completely messing with my head. Yeah. It's guy called Will Store has written it, and it's called The Heretics. And, oh, it's just the most under like undersung book. I, I've, hardly anyone I've <laughs> ever rendered it to has heard of it. Even huge readers like you, like, um, it was a gift to me from my friend Sarah Pascoe, who's genius, um, and it fundamentally changed me, basically. And and it's the same guy who's written this book on storytelling, so that's why I'm so excited to read it. Um, so it starts out, It's I don't want to spoil it because I want people to read it, but it starts out like a kind of book version of a Louis Theroux series. He's yes. like an investigative journalist who has gone to meet groups of people with very extreme views, perhaps Scientologists or terrible uh, sex offender criminals. Um, I can't remember now the groups of people that he goes and meets, but over the course of the book, it turns into something completely different. Um, Mm -hmm. it, It really, really turns into something a lot more introspective about how, about the human condition and how, and how we fear otherness. And it, for me, and I'm sure there's other ways of interpreting it, it totally and utterly reconfigured how I consider myself to be empathetic or sympathetic or how I would practice in the world. Because ultimately, it just, it, it cracked my mind open in terms of difference of other people and difference being a good thing. But also, as part of that, this having to accept that ultimately there's the potential, and I've argued with people until the cows have come home about this. But everybody thinks, no, there are very few people in the world who think that their opinions are wrong. You know, most people think that they are good and what they're doing is right and good. Even if those people have an opinion you find 
morally repugnant. And so someone, we all kind of live in this sort of state of slight arrogance. And it's part of survival because you have to, because if you, if you genuinely thinking all the time, hang on, what if they're right? I mean, that's what he, he makes you ask that question, but he does it in such a clever way. But basically, long story short, it, it changed the, the way I empathise, the way I look at people with opinions, even opinions that I find frightening or, um, or and make me angry. Um, it really, really, it's about the nature of empathy, I think, potentially. Um, and, uh, and off the back of having read that, I found myself in a library and I, um, Trump was running to be president uh, or maybe just been elected, you know, and I'm same liberal guardian reading, you know, stereotype, you know, white middle class Canadian. I, you know, my opinions are obvious to anyone listening I'm sure but like I was like I want to know how this has happened like how has this man got so popular and and there's got to be reasons how's he got like that how have the people that have voted for him come to that point what are their lives like and I found myself getting a book by I would say objectively vile woman called Anne Coulter but she's like a right-wing pundit in America she's kind of like oh um, oh, you know uh, a kind of Katie Hopkins of America like a you know self-confessed anti-feminist pro-life very far right-wing lady woman she wrote this book about Trump kind of I don't know I think they've since fallen out hasn't everyone with him but um she wrote this and I found myself getting that out of the library and I was fascinated by it absolutely fascinated I was like yeah I think this is it like because of reading the heretics I was like you can't only read things that confirm your own bias Jess you have to sometimes read a Daily Mail or read a Telegraph or listen to LBC or read a book by Ann Coulter about Trump because it's not enough to just live in a bubble of people who have all the same opinions as you. I think I found it, I was expecting more of a sort of Louis Theroux meets John Brunson romp, I think, because yeah. that's how it starts with yeah. the creationists in Australia. Yeah. And suddenly you're plunged into this world where it is a bit scary because he really goes quite deep, quite, I'm only about a quarter of the way through, mm. and I'm already feeling quite shaken by it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, I found it really um, helpful, actually, for what's going on at the moment, because I yeah. often feel quite overwhelmed by the hatred and lack of nuance and debate, particularly yeah. online, but in general now with Trump and Brexit and the pandemic and all the conspiracy theories. And I thought it actually helped me understand how that happens and how we can try and combat that a bit. Yeah, yeah, I do, uh, totally, absolutely. Just um, it's empathy, isn't it? Actual empathy, which which everyone's you know says they're an advocate of, but they've not really thought about it fully until you've read that book. What what really empathising entails? So, out of your last two books, I'm interested to know which is is the one that you hated. I hate the books of Dan Brown. Um, <laughs> okay. and they are. It's because I, so I was traveling Central America in my mid twenties and it's the first time I had ever, everyone was reading it. Everyone was absolutely loco for it, really into it. I've never felt more patronized by a book in my life. And it's the first time I thought, oh, I think because I, I'd still do pride myself on not being a massive snob. I'll read all sorts of different stuff, but it's the first time I thought, oh, I'm, Lucky enough now, you know, by my early mid twenties to have read so much brilliant writing and so many different types of it that it was why it was a significant book for me. What is it called? The 
Da Vinci Code was because it was the first time ever where I'd read enough good stuff that I was reading something and was like, oh, this is dog shit. And I felt, it felt like a, it felt like a coming of age. It honestly felt like a coming of age to be like, oh, your brain is big enough now, finally, after decades of being alive, to see that something's shit. Um, and when I say shit, I'm being cruel because I can understand that it's it's not shit in the sense that it's you can whip through it. But oh my God, did it. It told you what it was going to tell you. I remember a teacher giving me advice for my GCSE exams, especially sort of history and things like that. And this is GCSE. So this is where you're meant to be when you're 15, 16. It said, they said, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them it. Tell them what you told them. That's how to structure an essay. And that's how he's written the book. But he just does it again and again and again. And it's actually, it's sort of the worst advice you could give a novelist or even a stand-up, actually. So, so stand-up as I am a stand-up is probably the best analogy. You, you know, one of the things you learn as a stand-up, and it takes a decade normally, but is to not do that thing of going on stage and going, and here's a little something about myself. Then they say there's something about yourself. And then you say, do you remember that thing about myself? And you don't need, you just... Just say something about yourself. Don't tell people you're going to say something about yourself. You know what? Oh, and another thing about where I'm from. Oh, and I, I know what you're thinking. I look like it. And it's like, no, it's so formulated. It just felt like he'd taken a GCSE essay structure and just done that again and again and again at me. It was so much telling me what he was going to tell me, telling me it, and then telling me what he just told me like I wasn't there for it. Oh, dog shit. So I spoke earlier about I read lots of books about eating and stuff, but I've been on I've sort of had lots of disordered eating all of my life, and um, I, I had a therapist years ago before I was ready to address the disordered eating who who sort of tried to uh, tap into it, but I wasn't really ready, and she recommended me this book years ago, and at the time she gave me or she lent me actually she gave me a very early copy of this that was all sort of black with neon writing, and it was called Fat as a Feminist Issue. Um, a self-help guide for overeaters <laughs> so it's really embarrassing to read in public um and um I've it's one of those fascinating books where ever since I first read it I took a bunch of stuff from it and I also took the very early seeds of kind of what my philosophy is now in terms of really not overthinking food very much and being quite instinctive and uh detaching all um judgment and shame and emotion where possible from eating just get on with it just enjoy it it's not fuel it's more exciting than that but it's also not who cares have what you want when you want you know that we are so lucky that we're in a a space abundant uh that anyway and 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 very very much in hate with the diet industry and think that it has caused so much pain and suffering and obesity ironically anyway I read that book and that was my first little window into, what would you say, like an enlightenment, really, like out of a lifetime of constantly on a failing diet, followed by uh, long patches of um, binging. But I now know, so so what was really interesting was I read it, I probably spoke about it with friends, I found female friends who have complicated it, relationships with eating, reading it too, and we all took different things from it. And I now realise, as much as there are the seeds of wonderful philosophy in it, it's also, in the context of everything we know now, years later, an incredibly problematic and fat-phobic book that's got some horrible, dangerous messages in it. 
And so on the one hand, where, where, whereas I sort of had a life-changing light bulb moment from the book where I was like, you can, there's still bits in it that I remember where it says, go out if you can afford it and buy literally everything that you'd ever not normally allow yourself in the supermarket. Do a food shop and get like all the crisps, all the chocolate, whatever your thing is that you would be like, no, I'm not having that, I'm on a diet. Get it all in, fill your house with it, flood yourself with it. It, you, it's there if you want it. It's not a sin. It's not a, had all this amazing philosophy in it. But the takeaway message that I took from the whole book was that if you're fat, you're fat on purpose because you're looking for an excuse for why you're a failure, which is a disgusting message and the one that I took away for years. So in the one hand, it, it, it was why I think it's a fascinating book. And I've got friends that read it that took totally different messages from it. So it's obviously really open to interpretation. It's like a kind of Bible in a way, but so flawed in the in the, in the detail. You know, flaw, like the Bible's got these amazing things in it about treat people like you would like to be treated. You know, and if that was it, great. But unfortunately, it also says that gayness is shit. You know, it's it, it's that, isn't it? It's like it's so much good, but unfortunately, so much poison in there too that I can't recommend it solidly as a book about how to eat now but it was this beginning of something beautiful and brilliant for me in terms of enlightenment um uh, and I, I don't yeah yeah so it's complicated that one but it's definitely significant in my life but it definitely got some awful stuff in it too <laughs> so that so that that's sort of one of the ones that I, I would say I hate it but um oh god I couldn't it wouldn't be my go-to books for anyone now looking for like a book about having a happier time when it comes to eating that's quite a good nuanced way of looking at something because you're not dismissing it out of hand is no it? no and I've spoken to other people as well who it was the beginning of their journey to happiness <laughs> it is it's, it's so there's, there's greatness in it it's just a mixed messages it's, it's written by somebody who wants people to be happy and well but unfortunately you know uh, uh, it has a a very ingrained by society and by that most people still have he- hatred and dislike and phobia of fat people so you know that's problematic that that needs shifting (laughs) normally I ask people for an independent bookshop and you sent me something I've never heard of yeah Margaret Cable Smith put me onto them it's an online book retailer in there it's a black owned bookshop and they're yeah wicked lots of really interesting stuff especially I would say if anybody has sort of um, looked at the Black Lives Matter movement recently and gone, I'd like to really up my game as an ally. And yeah, so I think this it's a bookshop full of amazing stuff to read. So is it just, it's just an online one, yeah? Yeah, I think so. As far as I know, I've only ever used it online. Yeah. So it's called No Ordinary Bookshop and I'll, it'll be in the show notes, but it's noordinarybookshop.co.uk. So um, that's really cool. I'm going to check that out. I don't, I've never heard of it. Yay. Yeah, Margaret Cable Smith put me onto them. Very funny, brilliant lady. Good, there you go. An alternative to Amazon, lads. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me about books today, Jess. It's been oh, my pleasure. pleasure. Thanks for having me. What joy. Give me a ring when you've finished her- Heretics, promise. I will if my brain's still working. Okay, okay. Deal? Great, great, great. Promise. It will be, I promise. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Comics Books. This was our final episode in our very first series, and we'd like to thank all of you who've been downloading and listening each week. We'll be back with more in a couple of months, but in the meantime, please do rate, review, and share, as it's the best way to help us spread the word. Have a fantastic summer. As always, we wish you the best time, whether you're reading, laughing at comedians, or reading books recommended by comedians. You get the gist.